Amen. You can take a seat. What I, I love about the life and ministry of Jesus is that there are no softballs. If you read the Gospels, uh, Jesus addresses some of life's biggest questions. Um, we talked about it the last couple of weeks. He addresses things like shame and religion. And this morning, we're going to talk about one of life's biggest questions, and that's our enemies. How do we treat them? How do we interact with them? How do we respond to them, and Jesus is going to give us some of those answers, although we may not like them at first. All of us in here have enemies, like every one of us in here, except for maybe my four-month-old baby, right? But she eventually will, and I will put them down. <laughs> no, right? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust Jesus because he has a better way for us to respond to our enemies. He has a better way for you to respond to your enemies. What we see in this passage that Nick just read is that Jesus is in the middle of preaching a sermon, and he's an incredible preacher, right? He's in the middle of preaching a sermon, and he's addressing big questions like, what do we do with our enemies? And we're going to see the theme of this passage is that we should love our enemies. Verse 27, it gets us kick-started in that direction. Now, this is a section of Jesus' teaching that's honestly not too hard to understand, but it's really hard to do, right? Love your enemies. Most of us think like, okay, I get that conceptually, but that's really hard to do. In fact, this is one of those passages where most of us are begging for some context, right? Like, usually context, specifically in a sermon, people wonder, like, why are we going through this? Do you kind of phase out? I know you do this. Right? You kind of zone out during this time of context. In this passage, you're begging for some context. Like, surely there's got to be a way around this. Surely we can excuse this and say, well, in the context, you know, Jesus was actually saying this. Because we hope for something that would soften the blow and not make us so uncomfortable and not make Jesus and his commands so scandalous. So we'll give some context, but you need to know Jesus is calling us to a radical way to interact with our enemies, and it's love. And some of you right now, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't know if Jesus was in touch with our reality today. Like maybe back then that was a nice concept that you could talk out and live out, but I don't know if he realizes today, like you have to defend yourself. You have to. But what you need to remember about Jesus is that he goes on to face evil and opposition like you and I will never even come close to. Right? He gets arrested, he gets beaten, he gets crucified by his enemies. And this same Jesus that knows that's what's coming down the pipe for him recognizes that he has enemies and that you'll have enemies, real life ones. Like in the midst of your reality, God is speaking truth. Do you see that with scripture? Especially in difficult situations and circumstances, especially with hard commands like love your enemies, it's in those moments that God on high is speaking down low to us and saying, in the midst of your reality, I'm speaking truth, that this actually works. And that's what we're gonna see him talk about. The good thing, by God's grace, is he doesn't stop there and drop the mic, right? It doesn't just say love your enemies 
and walk off stage. He tells us what this looks like. So we see it in verse 27. Look at the verse. It says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. So do good to those who hate you. So if people say bad things about you, if people say hateful things about you, if people seem out to get you, what do you do? You're good to them. We bless those who curse us. So those people that talk bad about you, that slander and gossip about you. Maybe they talk bad about you to your face and they curse you. Maybe it's somebody at work who just seems like he's out to get you and he's gathering other coworkers and he's slandering you. What do you do to those people? You bless them. You pray for those who abuse you. It means you don't replay those moments in your mind a thousand times and saturate in bitterness. No, what do you do? You pray for them. Now, if you are now or if you have been physically or verbally abused, you, you need to look at me right now. If you've been abused verbally, physically, if you are being abused right now, what Jesus is not saying is that you don't call the cops. Jesus isn't saying you don't confront. Jesus isn't saying you don't get help. You absolutely do those things. And honestly, if that's you this morning, you need to seek help. You need to call the police. You need to reach out to an organization. You need to reach out to me after the service, and we'll find help for you. So you absolutely do those things. But after you do those things, what Jesus is saying is that you pray for those people. So maybe you've just been spoken too harshly. You pray for those people. Why prayer? You think about that? Why prayer? Because Jesus knows as you begin to talk to him about these issues, that it's harder and harder to move to a place of bitterness, but instead you move to a Jesus-centered place of loving your enemies, like he has loved you. And so this is what it looks like to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Simple, right? Let's just all go out and do that today. It's difficult. It's a new paradigm that Jesus introduces. It's radical. It's scandalous. It's crazy what Jesus is asking us to do, is it not? I mean, this is crazy. It's a new paradigm. And so some of you might be asking, are there any examples of what this might look like? Are there any real-life situations that I may go to? Any illustrations, Tim, that you have for us? And I would say to you, yes. But Jesus has them because Jesus is an incredible preacher. And so he has built-in illustrations. Made my job easier. Verses 29 through 30, look at those verses. Jesus gives us three examples. The first one in verse 29, he gives us the example of someone who slaps you. Now this is not so much about the physical harm as it is the insult. And so you think about in that day, and you even think about in our day. Like if somebody just comes up and open hand slaps you on the face. That may hurt for a few minutes, like you may have a little red spot, right? But what hurts more? Internally, right? There's some shame, some embarrassment, some insulting that goes along with that. And so honestly, I would rather somebody punch me in the gut than slap me in the face. Now don't do that. But if I had to choose between the two, I would rather be punched in the gut than slapped in the face because there's some shame, some embarrassment, some insulting associated with that. And so Jesus is talking about when someone insults you, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. 
You don't lash back out at them, throwing insults at them. You turn the other cheek. You give. Verse 29, the second part, he said, someone takes your cloak, that's your outer garment, your coat. How do we respond? Jesus says you give your tunic, that's your undergarment, your shirt. Typically in that day, they only had one. Right? So Jesus is giving a drastic example of what it means to give when you've been wrong. He says you only have one cloak, one tunic. Somebody wants that, you give it to them. And that may mean you're naked. <laughs> Just FYI. But Jesus knows that, and he's saying, this is my new paradigm. This is my new economy. You love your enemies. You give to those who wrong you. Verse 31, he sums it up with maybe something you've heard before, even if you're new to church. He says, as you wished that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus is confronting this tendency to want to get even when we're wronged. He says, don't do that. Instead, give freely. So I've shared this story before, but a few years ago, about three years ago, uh, my daughter, who's now six, was three years old, and we were at some friend's house. And it was a dinner, but it wasn't just a casual hangout. This was a couple that weren't believers. And so we were trying to witness to them and share the gospel with them. And so in a typical dinner conversation, I would be more laid back. And this, we're kind of focusing on the conversation and trying to take next steps to get to the gospel. But when we show up to the house, I didn't know this, but there's these two older boys who are there that are about six and seven years old. My daughter is three and she goes right off to play with these older, stinky, mischievous boys, right? And so I see that, and I'm like halfway engaged in this dinner, trying to get to the gospel with this couple. And then I'm halfway glancing over at my little girl, right, to make sure she's okay. And so I'm halfway engaged in the conversation. I'm glancing over every once in a while. At one point, I glance over, and I see one of these stinky boys pick up a baseball and throw it at my daughter's face, and it connects. And so immediately, my three-year-old daughter is screaming and crying, and she loses it. And so I get up as her dad, and I go over to her, and the first thing I do is make sure that my daughter is okay. I make sure she calms down and she's okay. The second thing I do is I turn to these little punk boys <laughs> who just hurt my daughter, and I said to them, I said, hey, guys, let's not throw baseballs at people's faces. How about we not do that? One of these little boys with a smirk on his face picks up the baseball, and he throws it in my face. And so I'll be honest with you. At that point, I wanted to throw that baseball back at his face and then go tell his parents. <laughs> what kind of operation are you running here? Where you let your six-year-old boy abuse my three-year-old daughter with a baseball? Why did I do that? Why did that well up in me? I didn't do that. Just FYI, don't call CPS. Um, <laughs> I didn't throw the baseball at him, but why did I want to do that? Because I have this deeply rooted desire to get even to settle the score, and you do too. We all have that. That's a, a silly situation, but in bigger situations, when people wrong us, do we want to give freely as Jesus talks about? No, 
that doesn't even make sense to us. We want to go back at them. We want to settle the score. And now, we have a lot of different personalities here. We have a lot of different kinds of people. And I think there's two primary lanes where we do this. So some of you may be thinking, well, I'm more passive. I'm not confrontational. I hate conflict. I don't really do this. I think you do. Uh, some of us are more out there. We're in your face, and we'll confront, we'll lash out. I think there's primarily two lanes that we fall into this morning when we're wrong. I think one of them is we attack, and then one of them is we avoid. I think those are the two primary lanes that we fall into. So for those of you that attack, when, this is when you confront and lash out when someone wrongs you. So someone criticizes you about your character, and you go right back at them. In fact, you have a list of 10 ways that they do that way more than you do, and you just got them in your back pocket, and you're just waiting for that guy to say something to you. It's like, oh, yeah, well, how about the other day when you did the same thing times 10? And we just rattle off that list, and we go right back at them. We confront, and we wait for those opportunities. We attack. Someone insults you in word or deed, you come right back at them. You think, how dare you? You begin to yell, you throw things, and you attack to get even. But then others of us avoid. This is when you isolate, when you think, why bother with people? They're just going to hurt you. This is when you walk by someone and it's planned out at work. You think, I'm going to walk by the water cooler just so I can not say anything to Johnny. I'm going to show him, right? And we avoid. These are the times when someone calls you that's wronged you. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a family member. And you look down at your phone and you think about it for a second. Be like, no, I'm not letting him get off that easy. And you hit decline. And you're like, take that. And you avoid and so it's a little bit more discreet, it's passive-aggressive, but the heart is the same, wouldn't you agree? We attack, we avoid. We want to get even, not give freely. And so whether we do that, whether you attack or whether you avoid, I think what we all have in common is that we often find ourselves keeping score. So I remember my wife and I, we first got married and we put together our first budget. Uh, so we've been married nine years we first got married, we put together our first budget, we both had full-time jobs. And we didn't make any money, but we thought we were rich because we lived in East Texas in a one-bedroom apartment that I think was about 525 a month, the good old days. And we're doing our first budget and we're crunching numbers and it's just like, baby, fantastic, we are rich. I mean, you don't even realize, like we're gonna go on vacations, like this is gonna be amazing. And we got on this really high, and we got really excited about our budget and about where we were financially. And then we began to factor some other things in. I was about to start seminary, and we just thought, okay, well, seminary is really expensive, so we've got to add that number in. At some point, we want to buy a house and not live in this one-bedroom apartment. So we've got to save up money for that because that costs a lot of money. At some point, we want to have kids, and everybody knows kids cost a lot of money. And so we started to think about these things and these life events that we needed money for, and we began to put those numbers into the spreadsheet and into our budget, and that high we were on of we were rich went quickly to a low of we are poor. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, like how are we going to do this? And it was a high, and then it was a low. It was an emotional roller coaster as we began to crunch these numbers. And I think most of us, if we're honest, our relationships feel a lot like that. 
our relationships where we're wronged, we face enemies and opposition, it feels a lot like that. Because we think about, in our mind, we meditate on these things. How can we attack? How can we avoid? How can we even the score, whatever we can do, and maybe it's family members, maybe it's friends, maybe it's people that are just straight up enemies, but we just think, how can I attack? How can I avoid? How can we get ahead? And we start crunching the numbers in our head. And if we're honest, that's an emotional roller coaster, and that's your relationships. And if you just sit back and look at it, it's not helping, right? You're exhausted from that. You're completely exhausted. Maybe that's you this morning. You're just completely exhausted with that confrontation, with that friend that's betrayed you, with that employee that's wronged you. You're completely exhausted as you try to keep score in your head and go after them in different ways, and you attack and you avoid, and you're exhausted. And I think if we were honest and we just had that conversation, I think most of us would say it's not helping, right? In fact, most often, we end up in bondage and the other people, unaffected. They may not even know there's a conflict. Isn't that the worst? This is tearing you up inside, and one day you do approach it and you do bring it to the surface, and they're like, I don't even remember that conversation. (laughs) Like, oh, you don't remember when you passed by me and you bumped me with your shoulder? You're like, "I, I was just going to the bathroom in a hurry. Like, I don't. It tears up you, not them. It doesn't even work, but so many of us, this is where we are. Jesus is addressing that. That's why he gives these drastic examples. Again, Jesus, great preacher, right? He gives these drastic examples. Why? Because he's addressing this underlying heart issue within all of us that wants to take personal revenge, that wants to get even. Jesus is saying it doesn't even work, right? You need to go the exact opposite way. Now, Jesus is not saying you should be a doormat. We're gonna talk more about that in a minute. We see Jesus standing up for injustice in the temple with the money changers. We see in the book of Acts, Paul confronting Peter over his hypocrisy. There are times when you'll need to stand up to fight injustice. So here's the key as you think about this. There are times for that where you need to stand up and fight injustice. Here's the key. It's not for selfish gain. Jesus is talking about a personal revenge, a personal vendetta to get even, right? So if if somebody is raping somebody and you walk past that, do you do something? Yeah, absolutely you do. If somebody is breaking the law, do you call the cops? Yes, absolutely you do that. Jesus is talking about in personal interactions with people that you don't get even. So you're not a doormat. Jesus is getting to the heart. The heart that says, I have to defend my reputation, my security, my rights. Who's all that centered on? Me, right? Like, I have to do this. I have to uphold my reputation. I can't look like the low man on the totem pole in this situation, in this conflict. I have to rise above. I have to win. And Jesus knows that's our heart. He knows that's the economy that we live and breathe, and we do. That's the economy that we live and breathe, and Jesus is taking that, and he's flipping it on its side, all right? He's saying, I have a new economy, a new paradigm that I want you to follow. I want you to take everything you have, 
As you think of all those things in those three examples, your possessions, your comfort, your pride, Jesus says, I want you to take all of that and I want you to let it go. And so your pride, let that go. Your comfort, let that go. Your possessions, your security, let that go. Why? Because he wants you to stop finding your security in that, in your identity, and find it in him. That's how we can not get even, but instead give freely. And that's what he's getting to the heart of, that we would trust Jesus and his justice more than our vengeance. That he's in control, that we aren't. That he's going to make all things right one day, that we don't have to. Do you see that? That we're trusting in his justice, not our vengeance. Jesus is getting to the heart. Look at verse 32, he continues. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good and lend, expect nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So Jesus is continuing to flesh this out, and he's saying, do more, stand out, be extraordinary, that the one who follows Jesus, that he loves, that he shows mercy, not just to the people who do everything right to them, not just the people who like them, but no, to your enemies, that you show love, that you show mercy extravagantly toward enemies. Now, there's an assumption here, right? There's an assumption that Jesus makes, and it's this, that you actually have enemies, right? That you have enemies. And why does Jesus make that assumption? Because he has enemies, right? He has enemies already. We're, we're looking in the book of Luke at these encounters with Jesus. And just in the couple chapters, three weeks, we've seen that people don't always like how Jesus rolls, right? Some people do, and he attracts some crowds. But as soon as he starts talking about weightier things and moves past healing, and he starts talking about the Sabbath, he starts talking about law versus grace, people rise up against we just saw it last week. For the first time in the book of Luke, with the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the scribes, they start thinking about how can we get rid of this guy? So Jesus has enemies all the way up until the end. The disciples, read the book of Acts. Those guys get flogged, beaten, imprisoned. They have enemies. And so if we follow Jesus, we'll have enemies. Now, this doesn't mean you go pick fights, right? Like, if you don't have enemies, I gotta go find some. No, don't go pick fights, but it's the reality that Jesus is assuming that we'll have this because if we follow Jesus, they did back then, if we do now, Jesus will always be countercultural. So you think about the hot topic issues of our day, Jesus is always going to be countercultural to that. And so everybody, listen, if you're, if you're more of a, a friendly person, a get-along person, you need to know that everybody all the time isn't going to sing Kumbaya together. That's not the way it's going to work. That if you really hold to the truth of Jesus, that it's offensive. Have you heard that before? The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. 
a lot of people don't like it. If you truly follow that, some people won't like you. You'll have enemies. And so the question we need to ask is, are we wrestling with that tension of how to deal with our enemies? Because verse 26, right before this, Jesus says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That this isn't even the norm. That if you really follow me, Jesus knows you're going to have enemies. Are you wrestling with that tension? Is there a tension to wrestle with? Are there people who oppose you? And listen, you don't go try to find those people. You don't go pick a fight. But you do want to ask, am I watering down the truth of the gospel? Am I just not saying things about Jesus because I don't want to offend other people? Do I only huddle up in these little holy huddles and never get around anybody who thinks differently than me, who believes differently than me? Or am I rubbing shoulders with some of the people Jesus rubbed shoulders with? Are there some spheres of my life where I rub shoulders with people who don't believe what I believe? And as I live out the truth of the gospel in grace and truth and love for sure, but as I do that, there's people who oppose me. Do you have those people in your life? Are you wrestling with the tension that Jesus is wrestling with here? That we have this message of God, right? This message of God that says we're sinful. People don't like to hear that, do they? We're sinful. We're in need. Don't like to hear that, right? We're in need of a Savior. And if you repent and follow Jesus, you get to spend eternity with him. But if you don't, that you'll spend eternity separated from him in a place called hell. That's God's message. That's the message of Jesus, and he's wrestling with this message of, we have this message from God, and then we have these people, these skeptics, these sinners, these saints, who it rubs the wrong way. How do we love them? That's a good question to ask. Like, once you realize, do I have those people in my life, it's not like, how can we go at them, <laughs> Don't go there. It's how do we love them but wrestle with that tension? Are you wrestling with it this morning? Are those people in your life? What Jesus is describing is a bold love. And he's our ultimate example, right? You think about this. When Jesus was arrested, Peter chops off the ear of the soldier. He's there to save the day. And Jesus could have said, yeah, get him, Peter. And called upon some other disciples to join in the fight. But he doesn't. He says, they don't take my life, I give it freely. He goes on to be beaten, crucified by his enemies. He never retaliates. Even on the cross, this insult, this mocking that he receives, what does Jesus say? Forgive them. He never retaliates. Jesus lived this. He's calling us to this. And this isn't just the people who killed Jesus. He loves you and I like this. Like we look at those people we're like, those were enemies. You need to know scripture describes us the same way. Romans 5.10, it says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That we were enemies. That you and I, once upon a time, were enemies of God. And he reconciles us through his son. He loved us as his enemies. Jesus introduces us to the boldest, most powerful love ever known. So powerful it doesn't stop with his death. That he defeats sin, death, and the grave through the resurrection. That he defeats it. It's so powerful that it overcomes death and evil. It's so powerful that 2,000 years later, you and I are wrestling with the same tension of how can we love like that? 
It's so powerful. It's a bold love. It's why in Romans 8, it says, we were being killed all day long as sheep out for slaughter, so we have enemies. Yet, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Jesus. Listen, maybe you're in the middle of this right now. You need to know the only way we can love like this is because Jesus loved like this. You see that? The only way we can love like this is because Jesus loved like this. If we don't, what happens? If we don't, what are we missing out on? Because this text says we're missing out on something for ourselves. Verses 33 and 35 use words like benefit, reward, and then we see what those things are. Verse 35, look at the verse. He says, we'll be sons of the Most High God. Literally, it's not become sons of the Most High God if you do this, but it's that you're viewed as sons of the Most High God, that you're treated like that. And so that as other people who are enemies who oppose you, as they look at your life, that they would even say, like, I don't know if I believe in this Jesus character, but if he did exist, I think I would because of how you have loved me. This radical love that's different, that's extravagant, that we see that as enemies of God, that non-believers see that, and we think, if I can come around to the idea of God, I would believe in Jesus because I've seen you love me like this, that we point to Jesus when we live like this. The second benefit, it's not here, but it's just reality. We have a radical dependence on Jesus. You think about your life, when you're in the midst of these kind of conflicts, when people oppose you, when you face enemies, and some of those times are the times you're closest to Jesus because it forces you to rely upon him, to die to yourself, and to run and to lean on Jesus. There's a radical dependence. So if we don't do this, we won't be treated like sons of the Most High God. We won't experience a radical dependence on Jesus. And I would imagine, as we think about this today, I would imagine if you are a Christian, if you're here and you would say, I follow Jesus, I trust in Jesus, I would imagine some of you think, I want this in my life. Like, I want to see this lived out of loving my enemies. And not just that you want this in your life, you want this in our world. Like, you would love to see a place where people love their enemies. Maybe some of you, you want that conceptually, hypothetically. Maybe some of you think about that. But your pushback, and maybe you wouldn't even say it out loud, is won't we become enablers if we love like this? Won't we enable cruel behavior if we love like this? Won't we eventually be doormats? Like, won't people take advantage of us if we love like this? Won't we be kind of a doormat if we actually live this out? And so I wrestle with that tension. I think that's a real tension that we all wrestle with. So just quickly, I want to address that. What is the distinction between a bold love that Jesus calls us to in this passage and being a doormat? What does that look like in your life, in your past, in your future as you try to live this out? I think the first way is that bold love is active, not passive. So a bold love is active, whereas being a doormat is passive. Here's how that plays out. I think it's active in that we do good. We see this in this passage. We do good, we bless, we pray for our enemies. It's a very active love, right? It's not passive. It's not passive where we beat ourselves up, we walk in defeat, we move toward depression. That is being a doormat, right? 
God's not calling us to that. He's calling us to be active, to do good, to bless, to pray for our enemies. The second thing is it's humble, not timid. That when you love like this, you have a a humility that says, I want to confront this issue. I want to bring it to the surface. There's some humble confidence there. There's some boldness there. It's not timidity. You want to bring this to the surface? You want to forgive where you need to forgive. You want to repent where you need to forgive. That you lovingly confront. There's humility there. So it's not timidity where you avoid issues and tough conversations and whatever you can not to rock the boat. That's being a doormat. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It's a bold love. The third thing is we're into God-pleasing, not people-pleasing, right? And so we fear God more than man. We seek to follow his plan, his instruction, no matter the circumstance, that whatever God asks of us, we comply. This is what you need to know. Whatever God asks of you, you comply in the midst of people who do good to you, in the midst of people who wrong you. Whatever God asks, you want to please him, that you fear him over man, So it's not people-pleasing where you never say no, you don't have boundaries, you do whatever people expect of you, and you comply. No, it's it's more than that. It's a bold love that's into God-pleasing more than people-pleasing. So I hope that's helpful for you as you see that distinction, as you think about what would it be like to live this out. How do I know if I'm a doormat or if I'm walking out this bold love? I think those are three ways that we can just practically think about in our lives in our circumstances, with the people who oppose us. And I want to leave you with this as we close. Um, I know that some of you have enemies. We've talked about that. Some of you have people who oppose you. What do we go and do today? Like, where do we go from here? I want to talk about that just briefly. The first thing I think we do, you can write these down, is we talk to Jesus before we talk to others. That when we're wrong, we don't get swallowed up in gossip and slander, which is really easy to do, right? Like, did you see what they did to me? Have you heard what they said to me? That we would not go there, that we want to give freely, we want to love, as Jesus talks about, this bold love. So we would talk to Jesus before we talk to others. We would own any part that we have in confession and repentance. That we would shift our focus from the one who has wronged you to the one who gave himself for you. We would talk to Jesus before we talk to others. And so I remember in my life, um, I had someone who was opposing me. And to be honest, it was a tough situation, and I didn't really know how to respond. And so the reality is, I responded by coming home a good amount of time, and instead of talking to Jesus about it, I talked to my wife about it. And over time, that began to just well up bitterness within me and even in her because I was sharing this valid thing. Somebody had opposed me, but I wasn't talking to Jesus about it. I was talking primarily just to my wife and to myself about it. And it was just making me sicker and sicker. It was that bondage that I talked about. It wasn't affecting the other person. It was affecting me at the end of the day. And so I talked to a wise, godly man, and he just told me this. He just said, hey, read Psalm 109. Just go read Psalm 109. And the reason he told me to read that, and I kind of hesitate to tell you to read it, which is odd for the Bible, is because Psalm 109, David talks about his enemy and what he wants done to his enemy. And he talks very frankly with God that he wants that man, 
his wife to be a widow, his children to be fatherless, <laughs> it makes you blush. It makes you feel a little bit awkward as you read Psalm 109. He says, even when the kids are fatherless, that no one would come and help them. This is what David is describing as he talks to God. And I thought about that. And I was like, why do you want me to read that? Do you want me to wish this guy to be, uh, his wife to be a widow and his kids to be fatherless? Like, I don't get the application. And of course, it wasn't that. It was, he wanted me to see that you have freedom to express your heart to God. You have permission to express your heart to God. So what I would say to you this morning, if someone has wronged you, if you're in the middle of facing opposition, you need to know that God can handle it. You see that in Psalm 109. God can handle it. And here's the other thing you need to know is that he already knows your heart. He already knows what you're feeling. He knows how you want to get even. He knows your pain. He knows your hurt. Right? 1 John 3 said, God knows your heart better than you do. And he knows everything. That God's more in tune with your reality than you are. So he already knows. You just need to tell him. And so if someone's opposing you, you don't go to God and say like some little cute prayer of, God, just help me to be more nice to them. And you're really thinking like, oh, I hope they just drowned. You know, like, you don't do that. Tell God he can handle it. Express your heart to him that when you do that, there's a freedom that you've let the God of the universe know. You think he can take care of that? You think he can handle that better than you? Yeah. Talk to Jesus before you talk to others. He can handle it. The second thing, give freely because Jesus has given to you. So practically, that you would take steps toward reconciliation, that you would give grace, that you would give forgiveness, that you would give love. And listen, when you do all that, when you've given all that you can, that you can take a step back. Now, I don't mean you wash your hands with a situation. I don't mean you just say that person's dead to you. You give love. You give grace. You give kindness. You give repentance. But at a certain point in that relationship, if you don't see anything changing at the moment, and maybe it's been years, maybe it's been months, that you take a step back. And you trust Jesus. You fix your eyes on him, and you wait humbly for a time where you may reengage that person. But you take steps in that direction. You give freely because Jesus has given to you. The third thing, you entrust your case to Jesus. Some of us think, if we're honest, that if we don't make our case, if we don't get even, if we don't settle the score, no one will. 1 John 2 talks about Jesus being our advocate. That means he makes our case for us. So listen, the God of the universe, the just and the justifier, the one who in the end will make all things right, who will punish sin, who will restore humanity the way it was supposed to be. That God is your advocate. Do you see that? Who else do you need to make your case to? The God of the universe knows and he's gonna make it right. And he wants you to trust in his justice, not your vengeance. So wherever you are in the midst of that opposition, entrust your case to Jesus. Once you've talked to him about it, once you've given freely, entrust it to him that he's go going to take care of it. As we think about this morning, 
I know people have opposed you. I know people have hurt you. Some of you are in the midst of that right now. And some of you, it hits close to home because it's kind of dicey. It's like this family member you have that just seems to oppose you at every turn. It's this person you thought was a friend who's betraying you. And you think, how do I respond to that? These are some steps that you can begin to take right now that Jesus knows that he's there with you and that at the end of the day, he will make all things right. Trust him. What if we took one of those practical steps this morning? I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. I know it's awkward. But what if we took one of those steps today? How would that change you? How would that change your enemies? I mean, we need to pray and ask God to motivate us, to compel us, to take those steps, because it is extremely hard. But the good news is he's given us everything we need in him and by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in this, to actually see this lived out in our lives, in our city, in our world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time. I thank you that Jesus walked amongst us, that he lived this out for us, that none of this is in a vacuum, that none of this is out of touch with the reality, that he's way more in tune with our reality than we are. God, I pray in the lives of these men and women that I'm looking at across this room who I know are in situations where they've been wronged, where they're facing opposition, where they're facing evil head on. God, I pray that they would actually trust this. They would live this out. This wouldn't just be some trite saying of, oh, yeah, I love your enemies. We would actually live this out by the power of your spirit, spirit, by the grace of Christ. Father, we need your help. We need your example that you loved us this way, that you did good to us even when we hated you, that you bless us even when we curse you, even as we do that now as followers of you, that you bless us, that you show grace to us, that you're merciful toward us. May we be a people who model that and message that and live that out in the city of Phoenix. Help us. We need it. We pray for it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.